Now today we are starting a series called Jesus Freak. We're looking at Christianity in the 90s. So all of the things that, not all the things, but some of the biggest things in the 90s that Christians were involved in and the culture of the 90s, we're going to take a look at. I, I always try to dress according to the series, and I could only find one thing that I could have that even looked like the 90s, that was these shoes. They say that Doc Martens were popular back then, and this was the cheaper version of a Doc Martin. So <laughs> no, I think it's a more expensive version, but that's what I'm wearing today for a tribute to the 90s. So if you want to wear something in the 90s over the next month, oh, go right ahead and do that. I should have worn slip-ons. Go back with me to Father's Day, 1999. Phil Mickelson and Payne Stewart stood on the final hole of the U.S. Open at Pinehurst. Mickelson had a 25-foot putt for birdie to tie for the lead. Payne Stewart's ball was 15 feet from the hole. All he needed was a par. Mickelson's birdie putt came to rest about six inches from the cup. Payne Stewart's putt broke to the right and dropped into the center of the cup, making him the 1999 U.S. Open champion. It was a great day for Payne Stewart. On Payne Stewart's wrist that day was a bracelet that said WWJD. Hey, Nisi, will you bring me that bracelet or shoot it to me like a rubber band? Whoa, my gosh. That is powerful. You are really good. You just shoot that thing at that squirrel that keeps eating the food off of our bird feeder. Yeah, WWJD. It was a gift that was given to... Payne Stewart by his 10-year-old son just a few months before. And you'll see it possibly there on his wrist as he's holding that trophy. Father's Day, 1999. Well, four months later, on October 25, 1999, a Learjet carrying Payne Stewart and five other passengers streaked uncontrolled for thousands of miles across the heartland of America until finally as the occupants evidently were either already dead or unconscious the aircraft ran out of fuel and went hit nose first into the field in South Dakota the whole nation Especially Springfieldians gasped in grief because Painster was a Springfield boy. Went to school at Greenwood, played golf at Hickory Hills. Payne burst onto the PGA with a little swagger, chewing bubblegum, a bit caustic, a bit cocky. In 1989, he was so cocky that he refused to shake Tom Kite's hand when Tom Kite beat him on a playoff for the Tour Championship. 
But something happened to Payne Stewart. He had a spiritual awakening. And he became a follower of Jesus. He was not by his own admission a Bible thumper, but he did want to change how he lived his life. He did not want to be the guy that refused to shake the winner's hand. He wanted to be reminded and to express his new spiritual life. So he began to wear WWJD. The bracelet hit its popularity in the 90s, but the bracelet, WWJD, What Would Jesus Do, started long before. Christians have really been asking themselves this question in one form or another since Christianity was founded. But in 1886, the members of the congregation at the Central Congregational Church in Topeka, Kansas, to them it became, this phrase became a household phrase. Because every Sunday their pastor, Charles Sheldon, did a series of sermons in which he told a story. And at the conclusion of each story, he would ask the question, as he has related to the congregation an ethical or a moral dilemma, what would Jesus do? These sermons were so popular that a magazine wanted to publish them, and they did. And after the magazine did so well, Charles Sheldon took those articles from the magazine and he put them in a book that was called In His Steps. And I brought a couple of copies of that today, In His Steps, published in the 30s, and a children's version of In His Steps. In that popular novel, Reverend Henry Maxwell encounters a man who is experiencing homelessness. And the man challenges the reverend about imitating the life of Christ, and he expresses his sadness, his disappointment over the fact that so many Christians from his experience seem to ignore the poor. And here are some of the texts of that interchange. The man experiencing homelessness says to the preacher, I heard some people singing at a church prayer meeting the other night, all for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransom powers, all my thoughts, all my doings, all my days and all my hours. And then he said, I wonder if a lot of trouble in the world would not exist if all the people who sing such songs went and lived them out. And then he said, I suppose I don't understand, but what would Jesus do? Is that what you mean by following in his steps? So the question, what would Jesus do, is the question that the characters in the book and every chapter of the book ask when they are confronted with a decision. As for the man, Charles Sheldon, he was quite the guy. He was a Christian socialist. I think if people would have known that, they may not have bought his book. But he was not a big fan of capitalism. He had seen the abuses of capitalism and and the disparity between the haves and the have-nots, and the greed that seemed to go along with so many who were profiting from the capitalist way of uh, the economy. 
Charles Shelton was also a firm supporter of gender and racial equality. He was an advocate for the fair treatment of animals, even being a vegetarian. Besides being among the very, very few white preachers in the United States at that time to not only allow, but to openly invite black people to be full members of his church. Sheldon also publicly spoke against the KKK and uh, spoke against the movement of anti-Semitism in the country and confronted it every time he saw it. He also encouraged women in his congregation to become involved in politics for equal rights. Again, the reason he did so, he really did believe that all were equal in God's sight. And if this way of thinking was good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. Considering his view of capitalism probably won't surprise you to learn that after he published his book, In His Steps, there was a hiccup in the copyright process. And so he ended up not getting hardly a dime out of all the millions of books of In His Steps that were sold. It became one of the top 50 best-selling books of all time. And it still is a bestseller. And he didn't see hardly any financial profit from it. But it was, he was totally cool with it. He said, I'm just glad people are reading it. I hope because of this book, people contemplate Jesus. And I hope that it will affect their lives in a positive way. So fast forward 100 years from Charles Sheldon. And there's another pastor, a youth pastor in Michigan, who read in his steps. And he was so moved by it, he wanted to teach the students in his youth ministry to live by that principle of what would Jesus do. But he was like, how can I communicate that to that to them? And how can I encourage them to be reminded of what would Jesus do? So he and an advertising friend came up with the bracelets WWJD. And the rest, so to speak, is 90s history. Paul Harvey talked about the WWJD bracelet on his newscast. A lot of us don't remember, a lot of you don't remember Paul Harvey. I do listen to him every day. In 1997, he promoted this. And a company called Lesco Corporation that bought the rights to WWJD bracelet in 1993, I mean, they, they sold 15 million of these bracelets that year after Paul Harvey mentioned it. And uh, the WWJD bracelet just went crazy after that. You could buy WWJD bracelets and hats and teddy bears. They even made WWJD underwear, <laughs> which is probably a pretty good place to put WWJD. <laughs> what would Jesus do? Yeah. I could hear an amen for that one, huh? Back in the 90s, when Christian bookstores were a thing, you could go to your local Christian bookstore, and you'd see a, a variety on that theme. And there were books like, What Would Jesus Eat? What Would Jesus Drink? How Would Jesus Raise Your Child? How Would Jesus, Who Would Jesus Kill? And What Would Jesus Buy? In November 
of 2002, the in Evangelical Environmental Network launched a campaign with this slogan, What Would Jesus Drive? Many of us remember that question. In 2011, Sojourners, a great organization to which I subscribe, it's an organization that uh, really focuses on social justice. I just love what they're doing. And they came out with a campaign in which they asked, what would Jesus cut? And they were, they released this campaign during what we've just gone through between the House of Representatives and the White House over the budget cuts in order to raise the debt ceiling. So the question is, what would Jesus cut? Would Jesus cut military defense spending? Would he cut social programs? Yeah, it's a good question that uh, not, not just politicians, but all of us maybe should ask. And more recently, there was a question, who would Jesus deport? And there was this cartoon, who would Jesus bomb? At the Pentagon Bible study, all right, man, we've nailed down the what question now is which would Jesus do, bomb later, bomb now, uh, maybe bomb never, I don't know. Yeah, what would Jesus do? It always, <laughs> this is not in my notes, so I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> Little loose, there you go. The, the very people who say that the United States is a Christian nation would w be well served to ask, what would Jesus do? Because my perspective of this, and it may be wrong, my perception of this is that those who are beating the drum of a Christian nation over and over and over again do not reflect, by and large, there are always exceptions, but by and large, do not re reflect the spirit of Jesus that I have grown to know. And I really could be misrepresenting some people, but just from my knowledge, it, it is that way. I'm not sure what they're meaning by a Christian nation, but it doesn't seem like it's one that's following Jesus, and I'll shut up and get back to this. <laughs> so what do we do with the question, WWJD? What would Jesus do? with these political questions, ethical questions, moral questions, with spending questions, whether it's from our own household, our personal budget, to the federal budget. What would Jesus do? One young lady moved to D.C., wanted to do WWJD. So she didn't buy an apartment. She did not uh, rent a room anywhere because the Scripture says Jesus had no place to lay his head. And so what she did was just trust and hope that friends would allow her to crash on their couch. So is that what would Jesus do? Hmm. How am I supposed to copy a guy who had no place to lay his head? How am I supposed to copy a guy that would heal a blind man with the statement from his mouth? Or who at another time took a handful of dirt and spit in his hand and made some mud and put that mud in the guy's eye. Is that what would Jesus do? How are we to take the activity, the behavior of a man who lived 2,000 years ago, another time, another culture, and transcribe that, transfer that 
to 2023. Maybe, I don't know, but maybe my spiritual life is not about copying Jesus from the first century to this century. I mean, the two centuries are centuries apart, aren't they? I mean, Jesus wasn't married, as far as we know. Jesus was not a parent. Jesus never had to deal with an automated person, robot, for service help on the phone. <laughs> representative, representative. <laughs> I'd love to see Jesus ask the question, what would Jesus do with this? Automated customer support. That's, there is a hell <laughs> from last sermon. So maybe the point, maybe the point really is not so much about extrapolating from the first century the behavior of a man into this century. Maybe the point more is this. Maybe I just need to live in a moment-by-moment moment awareness of the presence of God, the presence of love that is in the person of Jesus, but it was also in other people throughout history, the presence of Christ, the presence of love, and be in touch with that so that when I have a decision to make, I am responding to, to that decision, and I'm acting in a way that is in line with love, that is in line with the Christ that we see in Jesus. Maybe the, the pathway is to cultivate a heart and a mind like Christ, to, to cultivate eyes that see people like Christ saw people, and to see a situation of hopelessness like Christ saw the situation as brimming with hope. The idea of WWJD, of course, goes way beyond even Charles Shedd, Sheldon in his book, In His Steps. We can, we can go back to, to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, his letter to the Corinthians, be imitators of me just as I also imitate Christ. That word imitator is this Greek word mimetai, and we can hear our English word mimic from that. So mimic Christ is what Paul is saying. Mimic me as I mimic Christ. The 90s had some pretty good mimics in, the, in uh, our memories. Impersonators. On the death of uh, George H.W. Bush, Sr. Bush, SNL did a tribute to him by playing some of the clips of Dana Carvey's impersonation of uh, the former president as a mimicking him. Take a look at Dana Carvey on SNL. Thousand points of light still operating, coming in from all those areas. <laughs> Not gonna do it. Not gonna do it. Okay, George Bush here. I'm watching you do your impression of me, and I gotta say, it's nothing like me. Bears no resemblance. It's bad. 
It's bad. Well, I'm sorry, Mr. President. I think it's a fair impression. Don't see it. You don't? It's totally exaggerated. Not me, those, those crazy hand gestures. The pointing thing, I don't do them. And also, na-ga-da, never said it. In all my years of government service, I never once said, na-ga-da. <laughs> Oh, it is good. And that's kind of the idea of that word, uh, mimetai, to, to mimic someone. Uh, I go back, uh, Denise and I went to Little Rock uh, Friday and yesterday, and uh, we decorated Mother and Dad's headstone. And it made me think of this sermon. <clears throat> back when we lived in uh, Poplar Bluff, we had a parsonage. That's when the church owned the house that the preacher and his family lived in. And we were within walking distance of the church, so every morning <clears throat> I'd walk with Dad. He'd go early to service. I'd walk with him, and I, I, I'd look over at him, and I'd watch how he'd carry his Bible. And he'd always carry it under his uh, arm like that. You know, I was this big. My Bible was this big. And, and I'd, I'd just watch him and carry it like that, just mimic him. We were at Popper Bluff, and we lived in 20 acres of woods, and Mother looked out the kitchen window, and she saw me on the ground <clears throat> with a rock, and I was pounding my head with a rock and kind of digging my forehead with that rock. And she just ran out there and said, Philip, what are you doing? And I said, well, Dad has a scar on his forehead, and I'm <laughs> trying to make a scar on my head. So... Do you love someone and admire them so much and respect them with the degree that you'd want to be them? And I think that's what I get from this word mimetai, that I so love Jesus and I so share those values and the impact that Jesus had on people. I just want to be like that. I just want to live like that. I want those values for my own life. One interesting thing about Paul, I'm not sure where I am on this. One interesting thing about Paul's statement here. In Thousand points oh, of light oh, still operating. Somebody take this thing away from me. I lost my scripture verse. <clears throat> after he says, imitate me like I imitate Christ, right after that, he goes into this sexist diatribe where he talks about women being beneath men. And since women are beneath men, women have to wear a head covering to show that they are submissive to men. <clears throat> Most misogynistic thing you could ever read. And so I just want to tell you that even Paul messed up when he tried to imitate Christ. That is not the spirit of Christ. And that's a spirit that reflects his culture more than the culture of Christ. And so if you don't always get it right, you're in good company. I'm in good company. You're with me if you don't get it right. And we could, we could just do better uh, when we know better. Yeah, let me go ahead. I, I already kind of teased you with this. Uh, 
<clears throat> Drake in the weekend released this song called Heart of My Sleeve. At least people thought it was released by Drake and the weekend. It was just, it, it was as wildly accepted and uh, as the WWJD bracelet was in the 90s. And within just a few days, there were 9 million views of that song. But then they discovered this. It was not made. The song was not made by those two artists, but it was made by artificial intelligence. But it was so spot on, sounded just like them, that even Spotify and, uh, oh, golly, bum, what's the other one, TikTok, uh, they were fooled. And they had to take it down because it wasn't the original artist. And there is the challenge that we all have. The challenge is, am I living my life so much like Christ that people couldn't tell the difference between Jesus and me? Yeah, I'm afraid not. There's an ancient Jewish blessing, and I am just so thankful for the rabbis of, uh, of Judaism. The ancient Jewish blessing was, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. The idea, as you very well may know, is that the rabbi's disciples, the rabbi's followers, would follow so closely to that rabbi as they would walk the dusty streets of Palestine that they would be caked with the dust that would be kicked up from the feet of the rabbi. I first read about this in Rob Bell's first book that I ever read of his called Velvet Elvis about 20 years ago. And Rob Bell says that he had a friend who went to Israel and he saw a rabbi going into a bathroom followed by all of his disciples. Just like a mother duck with all the little ducklings following because the, the disciples did not want to miss a thing that the rabbi would say or do. They wanted to go to the bathroom just like the rabbi goes to the bathroom, I guess. But it's that type of devotion that the followers had to the, to the rabbi. In that world of rabbis and followers and rabbis and disciples, the rabbi would pick people to be their disciple that they thought would be able to follow him that they thought would be able to live like him. And so they didn't pick everybody. They picked just a select few. Well, the understanding is that Jesus was a good Jewish man. Jesus was a wise Jewish rabbi. And he picked his followers. He picked people to be his disciples. Jesus picks you to be his disciple because Jesus thinks you can have his values, can share his values, can be like him, can live like him, can love like him. Jesus picks you. But don't get a big head because Jesus picks everybody. The problem is, and there's a passage in the scripture in, in the Christian scripture about this, that many are called, but few are chosen. And I, that used to be taught to me in such a way that not everybody is loved equally by Jesus, and not everybody is uh, 
called and chosen by Jesus. But the context of that verse is a parable in which Jesus, in which the, a banquet owner or a banquet, a king was given a banquet and he sent out invitations and they, they were rejected. And uh, so they came back, his servants did, and told the king. And the king said, okay, just go out and give the invitation to everybody that you see, especially to the crippled, especially to the poor. Invite everybody. But not everybody accepted the invitation. Not everybody came. So everybody's invited. But not everybody wants to live like Jesus. Not everybody comes to the banquet. I don't want to go to that banquet because you know what you have to do to go to that banquet? You got to be humble. You got to be willing to, to walk a narrow street. And that narrow street is defined by doing to others as you would have them doing to you. I don't know if I want to live that way or not. So Jesus invites everybody to live that way, but not everybody is wanting to live that way. But I do want you to know this, that Jesus calls you, and he thinks that every person on the planet can love. He thinks that every person on the planet can live like him. And he calls every person to be a follower, every person to be a disciple. Jesus has an incredibly high view of you, an incredibly high view of people, that you can do amazing things, live like him. This mother and father and their son, the mother is Alyssa Holder and her, the husband is Alpha and their son is Aeon. And this good mom, my gosh, what a model of the mother she is. When their son was just two years old, she began to teach him a mantra. And a year later, they were walking to school. And this little boy began on his own repeating that mantra without any prompting from the mother. Uh, and they, she happened to have her phone. And when he began to repeat this mantra, she captured it on, her, uh, on video. I'll share it with you. Take a look. I, I am smart. I am blessed. I can do anything. I am smart. I am blessed. I can do anything. I am smart. I am blessed. I can do anything. <laughs> Mom taught her little boy that those affirmations. And I think Jesus is telling me today, and maybe he's telling you today, to repeat those same affirmations. That you are smart, you are blessed, you can do anything. I am smart, and I am blessed, and I can do anything. I can even be like Jesus today. I can do what Jesus did. I can love like Jesus loved. What would Jesus do? That's up to you to decide as you walk with Jesus. But just know this. Jesus thinks you can do it, and he's called you to do it.
affirm yourself as that little boy affirmed himself. I bought a book written by the mom this week, and it says, I am smart, I am blessed, and I can do anything. I think I could finish that this afternoon if I try real hard. <laughs> but it may be something that parents, y'all, would want to get for your kids. Uh, I got it for myself because I need that affirmation myself. But on this day, this special holiday, death is so very close to our thinking today on Memorial Day. And the, the value of every moment is especially poignant today. And I want you to affirm every moment today, I am special. And I am blessed. I can do anything every moment of my life that I have left on this earth. I can be like Jesus. That's what Jesus would do.